0: As you remain standing um, and we think about Pentecost Sunday, we think about what it takes for a life to change and to become as God intended. And it takes uh, the word of God, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit and a supportive community. And Pentecost is a beautiful picture of those three things coming together. For the text this morning, we go back to the first person on God's behalf, bringing us God's word. And this is Moses. So we'll be looking at the story of the Exodus this summer. And as we come to this, We'd come very likely as Jesus would have by first reciting what he called the great commandment, what we call uh, in Hebrew, the Shema. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. <laughs> Adonai Echad. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the first chapter of Exodus, beginning in verse 8 and then going through verse 11. A new king came to power who cared nothing about Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelites are becoming far too numerous for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, they will fight against us, and they will leave the country. And so they set slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor, and they built storehouse cities for the Pharaoh in Pithom and Ramses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Slavery, biblically speaking, is never a good thing. But I did learn a few years ago uh, from studying um, Moses in Egypt with Ray Vanderland that for the early years of uh, being servants to Pharaoh in Egypt in the land of Goshen, things were not too, too bad for the Israelite slaves. For example, uh, they've six months a year worked on the Pharaoh's building projects and then six months a year they got to farm their own piece of land and bring in a crop. Uh, they'd had, when they were working for Pharaoh, they had 10-day work weeks, but on the other hand, they had three-day weekends following. And while they were in the service of the Pharaoh for those six months, uh, they received daily rations of bread and wine and even apparently received maid service in the quarters where they lived. It was slavery. It wasn't good, but it was about to get a whole lot worse. And then a new king a new Pharaoh came to power and Pharaoh is actually um, not uh, a title so much. Uh, it actually means like it means big house. So like it's like saying the palace or the White House. And so that's what Pharaoh is, not just a name, but kind of a place. It's an administration in a sense. So a new administration came and slavery became uh, something that brought only death. To the Israelites. Josephus, a very early, uh, Jewish, uh, historian, uh, writing in the time just after Jesus, said that Pharaoh killed many an Israelite with his building projects. The storehouses were for food. They were to bring life, but they became death camps and they brought death to the slaves. So a natural question I have is, well, who was this Pharaoh that that turned the page like this and behaved so cruelly? And the answer is the Bible doesn't say there's some interesting thoughts. Some people say that his name was Ramses who was a very long-running pharaoh. And therefore, the, the pharaoh of the Exodus, when it actually takes place, becomes his son, Ramses II. There's some indication for this. It's certainly, uh, if you ever saw the Ten Commandments movie, that's the, the pharaoh that Cecil B. DeMille went with. Or if you saw the, the Prince of Egypt, the Disney version, you saw they also went with Ramses. And it's possible. Some historians raise the issue that the actual cities of Ramses and, and Pithom that were used to store were built about a hundred years before the first Ramses. But the fact of the matter is that uh, he could have not, uh, he didn't have to be the original builder. He could have built on them and made them bigger and grander and he would have been said in the Bible to have built those cities. And they later came to be named after him anyway. So there's obviously a tie with Ramses. Some scholars though go back a, a couple centuries earlier and they think the Pharaoh of the Exodus uh, is a guy named Tutmos, like King Tut, only not that King Tut that we have the remains for. Uh, Tutmos III, who would have, the one who, would have been the one who e- e- um, issued this cruel edict. And then his son, Amenhotep II, would actually be the one who was the Pharaoh when the Exodus took place. Now the interesting evidence for that is we know from history that Amenhotep II had no heir. And if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, you know, one of the things that happens is the Pharaoh loses his only son and his heir to the throne. But the Bible really doesn't give us any clues. It's it's almost as if the Bible doesn't care. And I think the Bible doesn't. What's interesting, in chapter 1 of Exodus, the Bible tells us about all the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, who came in uh, to Egypt and lists them all by name and, and and their tribes. And in chapter 1, we hear about the two Hebrew midwives that will work against Pharaoh's plan, and they're named Shipra and Pua. But when it comes to the mighty Pharaoh, he doesn't even get his name mentioned. Could be one possibility is simply this... If this Pharaoh didn't care anything about knowing Joseph or knowing about Joseph and Joseph's God, maybe the Bible says, fine, we don't care about knowing anything about you and your name either. It could simply be that Uh, because one of the interesting things we learn about this Pharaoh is we're told in this version that he cares nothing for Joseph. Now, depending on which scholar you believe, Joseph came a few hundred years before this or as recently as a hundred years before this. But the fact of the matter is Joseph was no minor person. The world was starving and God brought Joseph into the picture and Joseph set up a a plan by which the world and Egypt could be fed. Later Joseph came up with a plan that when people ran out of money they came and they traded the deeds to their land to Pharaoh for food. So Pharaoh, the empire, the, the, the big house got rich because of Joseph. So forget about Joseph is a little strange. It's not like he is a minor, unimportant person. But I think what the Bible seems to be saying is when you forget about Joseph intentionally, you also want to forget about the God that Joseph brought into the picture, the God of the universe. So here's what happened. Pharaoh forgot about Joseph, therefore forgot about Joseph's God, and therefore did a very strange thing. He actually declared war on the God of the universe. Now, how do we know that? Because the very first commandment in Genesis is this to the uh, Hebrew people, Go forth and multiply. And even chapter one of Exodus, uh, Pharaoh even says, wow, they're multiplying. And that was God's command. They were supposed to do that. And so Pharaoh wants to stop that multiplication. So God's will is multiply. Pharaoh's will is stop multiplying. And so the battle lines have been drawn. Well, if you don't remember anything else from the sermon this morning, remember this. Never a good idea to declare war on the God of the universe. It's not going to go well. But what happens that's even worse is this. When Pharaoh decides to forget Joseph and forget Joseph's God, basically he has to have some sort of God so he becomes the God. We know from the study of of Egypt that Pharaoh was one of the gods of Egypt. And so if you look around and you can't find a God bigger than you, then you become the biggest God. And so I want to tell you that in the story this morning, the real problem for Pharaoh is that in forgetting Joseph and Joseph's God, he makes himself God, and that's a recipe for trouble. When you have to run the whole universe on your own, it's a tough gig. And that's what he tries to do. Interesting thing about Egypt, most every scholar will agree, it's a very oppressive bureaucratic system. Somebody, every person, no matter how small and how large, has somebody over them. Everybody in Egypt has got a boss. Doesn't matter who you are. So the slaves have a slave master. The slave master has a taskmaster. The taskmaster is somebody who who gives them the quota of bricks. The one giving the quota of bricks then has to be responsible for turning that quota of bricks to the person uh, above them who's doing the building. And on up it goes until you get to Pharaoh. And you may think, well, Pharaoh's responsible to nobody. Well, if we thought that, we would be wrong. You see, because Pharaoh's considered a god and considers himself a god, Pharaoh is responsible for two very important things. The sun coming up every morning and the Nile flooding every time at the right time of year so that they could have crops. They could have irrigation and therefore have crops. And if Pharaoh doesn't perform the right rituals in his temple then uh, and pulls the right maneuvers, then the sun doesn't come up and the rain doesn't fall And the Nile doesn't flood. That's a lot of pressure. Everybody is oppressed in Egypt from the slaves on up to the Pharaoh. So here's the deal. Since Pharaoh is enslaved by these pressures to run the world on his own, he takes it out on the Hebrew people And oppresses them. I mean, think about this. Pharaoh is responsible for everything in all of Egypt and really by his mind, everything in all the world. So he stops, he starts calculating. He starts in his fear pulling every lever like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. He's pulling every lever he can, who can find to try to put the, to pull this thing together. So the first thing he does is he's going to build these giant storehouses. The storehouses originally were to feed, uh, his army as they, as they went, um, went east and conquered new territory, but now they become his hedge against the fact that maybe he won't be able to make it rain one year. And so he's got to have these big storehouses. He's got to accumulate stuff as a hedge against uh, what might or might not happen. Now, I know you and I never accumulate stuff as a hedge against an unknown future, but he did. Uh, The other day, Pam and I went and toured uh, a house that's now owned by the National Historic Trust and the person that, that built this house had amazing collection of everything. The house is just completely filled with all sorts of stuff gathered from all over the globe. And my response to uh, my wife was, and, and so when he died, he turned the house and all this stuff over to the historic trust. And my response to my wife is, um, we can't do that because there's no historic trust that wants to take over our house. It's going to be our kids, and they don't want it. Uh, but sometimes we gather as this hedge against the uncertainty. Uh, the other thing is he starts to see, because he's in control of the safety of his people, he sees people who have worked for him faithfully for years now as threats. And he comes up with this calculating plan to eliminate um, the Hebrew threat. And uh, it's interesting. He has to make up stories against him. He says, if they're in this country, they'll rebel against me. Well, they haven't done it yet. But he has to do that because he's living in fear and anxiety. And then he comes up with this plan. And here's his plan. Think about it. He wants to make sure his supply of forced labor never leaves the country. So to ensure a supply of forced labor, he starts killing the laborers. Does that make sense? He wants to make sure there aren't any more babies to the Hebrews born in the land. So to make sure he starts killing the male babies. Does that make sense? The interesting thing about Pharaoh is he says, let's deal shrewdly. And he ends up doing really stupid stuff. And the result is this. It's predictable, isn't it? His labor force, in fact, does leave him. We call it the Exodus. Uh, He ends up bringing ten terrible plagues on his people. He ends up losing some of his best soldiers in the Red Sea. And if you follow the story long enough, he ends up losing his own son. His shrewd plan turns out to be not such a good plan after all. One of the things I learned in in, in a, a program some of us have been in called Faith Walking is this. They say when it comes to anxiety, one of the things you know about anxiety is anxiety makes us stupid. When we're fearful enough, when we're anxious enough, we'll do some pretty dumb things. I present to you Pharaoh Exhibit A. I present to you... Me, Exhibit B. Because I understand this story. Whenever I get nervous and fearful and think that the, everything's welfare comes down to me, I can do some pretty stupid stuff. If I think I alone am responsible for the life that my children live, even as adults, I'll do some pretty dumb things. If I think I alone am responsible for how things work out in the, in the government, uh, I'll say and, and think some pretty dumb things dumb things. If I think I alone am responsible for whether or not people show up on a Sunday morning, I'll tend to overreach and do some dumb things. The fact of the matter is whenever we try to be God, we're just not very good at it and we tend to make things worse. So quick advice this morning, uh, My advice to you is never forget that you are not God. Never forget you are not God. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I remember one of my professors had a sign on his desk, and it said this, I hereby resign as boss of the universe. I'd suggest that you turn in your resignation as quickly as possible. And then what you do, never forget that you are not God, so that, that what you can do is entrust your children your neighborhood, your nation, your church, your health, those things over to God because you are not God. Now, this doesn't mean you wave wave a magic wand or you think God's just going to do everything and you do nothing, but it means that you are not alone, solely responsible so you can ease off the manipulation pedal in your car. I'd never forget That I'm not God. And the second thing is, I would try to remember that God remembers. Interesting thing about Exodus 1 is you start with this long list of names that God remembers before you get to Pharaoh who doesn't get named. God knows the people in Egypt. God knows the slaves individually by name. Isaiah would say this later in the prophets, that God has each of our names engraved on the palm of God's hand. Jesus Son of God would say this in John 10 that I know my sheep. I know them by name. We have a God who remembers. Now, it's our job to remember that we are not that God. But when we forget, we end up in slavery and enslaving as well. But when we remember... That's where we find real freedom.